0: if we're consistent with what we do if we never change the quality that we present we're really trying to make ourselves the firm of choice in any market so it's not going to make us recession proof but it will insulate us
1: welcome to the resilient recruiter podcast this is your host mark whitby and i'm excited to be joined today by alan fisher Alan is the founder and president of Premier Financial Search, and he's been the recruiter of choice to elite local, regional, and national accounting firms for 25 years. Alan originally began his career in accounting and he made the jump to recruiting in 1988. Since then, Alan has established himself as an industry thought leader. He's spoken at meetings of the California Society of Certified Public Accountants, the California State Board of Accountancy, the Westside Firm Administrators Group, and many others. He's even been quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Alan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, Mark. Glad to be here. Fantastic. So we have a lot of mutual connections in the Pinnacle Society. Originally, you were referred to me by Harlan Friedman, who has also been a guest on the show before.
0: Um, how how long have you been a part of Pinnacle? Um, we're coming up on five years. I uh, I joined in the fall of two thousand eighteen.
1: Fantastic. Cool. And, and what is it about being part of a peer group that like what were you looking for and what and what have you found?
0: I'll start with a little bit of a story. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I, I'm a rookie recruiter, 1998, and our firm sends all the recruiters to, uh, to a conference. And it's the California Staffing Professionals, the Trade Association in California. It's their annual conference. And the keynote is Danny Cahill, who um, was phenomenal. Uh, and and mm-hmm. I'm a month into recruiting, so I know very little at this point. And Danny starts speaking and I'm I'm hooked I'm hooked on what he says but but I also know this is the industry this is where I want to be and uh, about halfway through his presentation he mentions the pinnacle society and the way that he describes it it is this elite group of ultra high-performing recruiters and it is the holy grail for recruiters that this is your destiny. This is what you strive for. Uh, and and here I am, early on in my career. And what he said left such an impression that it was a group that I sought out really over the next fifteen years. So you're you, you asked, what do I get? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> in the in the peer group, and it, it is some of the absolute smartest people I've ever met people who are passionate about recruiting, um, people who, on average, 25 years of experience in recruiting and everybody coming really from different parts of the country, but also different niches. But the one common thread is this ability to be vulnerable, to freely share information. And, And now you've got this group of people who, you can literally pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I'm going through this challenge and you're going to get immediate advice and it's going to be relevant advice. I love that. And, you know, that humility is
1: something that I definitely value. Um, we we actually, in our coaching program, we select people um, in the sense that we're well, we are selective about who we want to work with and the two main criteria. So of course we want someone who's coachable, who's open to new ideas, who's willing to, you know, really will expand outside their comfort zone. And, you know, no matter how successful they are, they are hungry to continue to learn and grow and improve. Uh, But secondly, they need to be willing to share as well with others to have, to help and benefit others in the group and so we're looking for someone who is generous rather than selfish in 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 nature and also um humble rather than you know and and realizes that you know okay i i've i've done really well in my career but you know why stop there there's there's you know there's levels to this and i i want to you know, I want to continue to learn and, and being um, willing to learn. So I think there's, there's definitely something in that. Tell me, Alan, why did you decide you'd rather be a recruiter than an accountant? <laughs>
0: um, I, I wasn't a very good accountant. Um, so I, I didn't realize at the time that uh, I, I wasn't the world's greatest accountant. So I, I went to a recruiting firm thinking, Maybe it's the environment, and maybe if I'm in a different environment, I'll I'll have a passion for what they do. And uh, fortunately, they 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 a lot of recruiting firms like to hire people early in their career that have some understanding of the industry. I was about a year and a half in, um, and my degree is marketing. It's not accounting, uh, and so I think they saw okay, here's somebody early in his career who. Uh, understands a little bit about sales and marketing. And um, they didn't realize it, but they freed me from the world of accounting. So uh, (laughs) when presented with the opportunity, of course, I knew nothing about recruiting. I just knew it wasn't accounting. And I was young enough that I could take the risk. Even if I fell flat, Um, I wasn't going to be falling that far. So it it was really a perfect time to transition.
1: It makes total sense. And and I I would have
0: made the same
1: exact same move myself. Um, so that's cool. Alan, you've been like really successful in your career. You've achieved your goal of like becoming one of the elite recruiters in, in the U.S. and joining the Pinnacle Society. I know that you've billed over a million dollars for like 10 straight years. Could you talk me through maybe some of the highlights of your career and then maybe some of the lowlights as well
0: uh i'll start with lowlights uh and okay. uh, having recruited for 25 years um i've been through a couple of recessions um both of which were um they were nasty uh and and they hit recruiting as well as the rest of the world pretty hard um 2001 was we had nine eleven, and there was the dot-com bust which led to a recession uh, and then the Great Recession of two thousand eight, nine, and ten. And there, there's a big psychological component to recruiting. And when you're doing well, it seems as though everything you do turns into something. And then when you you put together a little bit of a streak in the other direction, it starts creeping in your head. Will I ever make another placement again? Um, am I really good at it? And Um, the, the recessions did some of that. Um, and, and, and even to an extent, the first 60 days of COVID, it felt eerily similar to the last recession. So, um, certainly some lowlights there highlights. Before, before we dive into that,
1: I wanted to follow up on, on what you just shared and thank you for, um, Yeah. Thanks for bringing this up, because I think people do need to hear this, especially now more than ever. A lot of people are worried about, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about the economy in in your country and and my country. And uh, yeah, so this is very relevant, I think. Um, You're one of the few people who's mentioned the 2001 as being... Like a a, a a very challenging market, and that was my experience as well. Uh, we started our business at the same year in two thousand and one. What what month did you start, Alan?
0: So I started recruiting in ninety eight. Uh, I started yeah. my own firm in June of two thousand one, and then of course, ninety days later, we have nine yes. eleven, and yes, um, the the stock market closed, and then as soon as yeah. it reopened, it dropped. And there was, I mean, we had no idea what was happening in the world. And um, that kind of doubt led to anything that was in process came to a halt. Um, we yes. even had um, clients that were saying, we can't follow through on offers that we made. And you wake up and you just don't know what's the next shoe that's going to
1: drop. Absolutely. Do you know, so I started my business in September, 2001 and i i think like that horrible event it definitely like changed the world right permanently and from a you know economic point of view but also from a psychological point of view because it was like from that point on it was almost like anything can happen you know like there's there it's hard to feel certain and secure about you know things that we you know we were taking for granted before that. And, um, but the immediate impact was obviously the New York Stock Exchange stopped trading. The, like all flights were grounded, air travel, like, you know, people didn't want to fly for quite a while after that. And so then the whole, you know, travel industry and there was such a a knock on effect and maybe um, younger recruiters obviously were in in school, you know, maybe, maybe even uh, hadn't started their careers at that stage, so it's hard to really explain to someone who didn't go through that time what it what it was like. But it was, um, it, it was horrible. And then the the second time round, also, you know, it, it has left its scars on on people. And that's the uh, 2008 2009 recession. Um, I at the time had a different business model. I only had about five or six clients and I was, w- I was going into their companies and training their recruiters and their managers and doing sales training and stuff like that. And they were all growing like crazy. It was like to, the run in the, after the, you know, the 2001 recession between then and 2008, it was just like the, the bounce back and the the market came back even stronger, which seems to be the pattern. Like every time there was a recession, recession, things eventually go back to even stronger than they were before. And recruiting firms were hiring like crazy. They almost couldn't hire fast enough. And so there was a demand for training all these, you know, folks who were joining the business. But then like uh, within about two weeks, I lost four out of my five clients and like 50% of my revenue evaporated overnight. And, uh, you know, it was it, it, like, I was just Completely freaked out because that was an even bigger uh, or longer recession than that. Because the 2001 was shocking because of how it kind of kicked off, but it didn't actually last very long. Whereas in 2008, that one really dragged for quite a while. What did you learn during those kind of events? That, um, well, yeah, let me just leave it there. What did you learn from
0: that experience? I learned some of the things you just pointed out, which is um, coming out of a recession. Not only ha- have I seen the market rebound, but it usually rebounds in a in a dramatic way. So, what you described—the period from 2002 to 2008—it was straight up uh, across most industries. I mean, it was just this period of great economic expansion, and the same was really true. 2011 to 2020, and then even it, we had a dip during the first couple of months of COVID, and then you know with all the stimulus pumped into the economy, it's it was straight up sense. Of course, now things are are easing off a bit. So one lesson learned is, um, though though painful, the period after a recession normally brings prosperity. Um, unfortunately for a lot, fortunately for some a recession typically clears out um, a good portion of competition. So, I, I mean, I heard some of the numbers in the uh, 2008 9, 10 recession, which was 70% of recruiters left the industry. And, yeah. and I suspect with what's going on now, we're, we're starting to see some of that, and there's going to be some percentage of attrition, people that just leave the industry and don't come back. Um, and then there's a flight to quality. So clients would love to have choice in who they work with, but in a market where it is so impossible to find talent, in some cases, you're working with recruiters that um, you might not want to work with, unsavory, um, but you don't have choice. Well, when the market changes, the clients are going to have much more choice of who they work with, and they're going to revert to quality. Um, And that's one of the things that's really served us well in all economies is if we're consistent with what we do, if we never change the quality that we present, we're really trying to make ourselves the firm of choice in any market. So it's not going to make us recession proof, but it will insulate us. Absolutely. Yeah. No,
1: what you're saying is 100%. It's quality and it's also relationships. Like I think the recruiters who tend to be more transactional, um, you know, are more vulnerable perhaps than the ones who have deeper connections with their market, with their clients, with their candidates. And uh, that insulates you a little bit and allows you to, um, you know, to, to keep your clients and, and, and pick up whatever business there is available. Um, but as you said, it's, it's also about, you know, having the, um, the fortitude to, to, to stay with it and understand like this too shall pass. It's, it's not fun, but if you're committed to this industry and to this as a career, then, um, you just need to, do your best to get through it because on the other side is, you know, a tremendous opportunity. Um, so it's a bit like the stock market. Like you, I, I've, I'm reading this book recently. Have you read this, the psychology of money?
0: No, but I'm adding to my list. Yeah. It's
1: one of the best books I've read in a long time, best nonfiction books. And um, you know, If you try and time the market, so sell when you think things are going down and buy when you think things are going up, you will not perform as well as if you just keep investing for the long term all the way through because you miss that uh, initial surge from the bottom to when things start taking off again. And in each cycle, if you miss that portion of, you know, the, uh, of the bull market across, you know, over a few decades, it sets you back like hundreds of thousands in your, uh, in your pension at the end. So if you can just like, think of this as, um, dollar cost averaging where like the people who lose are the ones who sell at the bottom of the market, right. Who, who get freaked out and they, they, They they don't want to own stocks, so in in I don't know if this analogy really works out, but in recruiting terms, you only really lose out if you quit, you give up, you say this is too hard. Uh, You know I'm going to find a a different job. But if you if you can stay the course, then you know you're going to have that longevity in your career, and you're also going to be the one that benefits because you're positioned to take advantage of the upswing you've kept in touch with your clients and candidates you've been of service to your ecosystem your community uh you've stayed very close to things and when
0: things take off then they turn to you it's a good analogy um i really liked it um and a good example of how we implemented that is we never stopped doing business development and i think there Mm -hmm. you know there could have been an argument made that when when things were going up pre-COVID. It was easy to get new clients. We, we didn't have to do much, whether it was referral or, or companies reaching out to us. They needed us. Um, we didn't stop doing business development. And um, during soon after the stimulus came into the market, so this is second quarter of 2020, again, business was there. Um, we actually ramped up our business development because um, we saw that as an opportunity to potentially bring in more attractive clients and, um, give some of the people on our team better opportunities. And regardless of the market, we're still working both sides. We're still selectively trying to bring on new clients. We're still consistently recruiting. We're still consistently asking for referrals. Um, and I think that's your dollar cost averaging, which is regardless of the market, continue to do the basics and realize Good things are going to come.
1: Absolutely, Alan. It's. I feel like um, this is a theme that my clients are tired of me repeating, but it's like you—you've got two wheels on a bicycle. You've got your business development wheel, and you've got your recruiting wheel, and you need to have both. Turning at the same time to really get traction and to be able to go fast, because otherwise you're riding a unicycle and and that's fine if you're going downhill or on flat. But if you're trying to climb uphill on a unicycle, that's pretty that's pretty tough. So no matter how busy you are or think you are with existing orders, you know if you you have to keep doing business development. As you say, maybe it's a question of top grading your clients. Um, that's a term I've heard from Jeremy Sizemore, who's, um, coming back on the show for a second appearance. I I know, you know, Jeremy, um, he talks about top grading clients. Like why be satisfied with the clients you've got? Why not constantly try to upgrade and get even better clients? And then you can let go of some of the ones who maybe aren't partnering with you in the way that you'd like, or don't see as much value in what you offer and, kind of want to scrimp and save on the fee or, or, or whatever the case is. Um, so are there any other things that you teach your team or you focus on with your team to get through, you know, those more challenging periods? So never stop doing business development, I guess is one of them, but, uh, what else do you, are you doing with your team members to make sure, I guess on a psychological level and also on a practical level that they have the tools to be able to do as best as possible.
0: So it the changes in the economy haven't hit us yet. Yeah. And, and I say yet because, you know, certainly it's still possible, but the industry that we focus in, which is public accounting, tends to be a lagging indicator. So right now yeah. in January of, of 23, Firms are dealing with what happened in 22, uh, and 22 is still a very good year. So if it hits our industry, good chance it won't be until fourth quarter or even early next year. So we're still acting as though um, the market hasn't changed but may, and there are still opportunities to be able to um, you know, go out and capture as much um, as much new market share as possible while continuing to satisfy the clients that we have, um, realizing that the window is closing. And I think that's important because from 20 to 22, it absolutely felt like, okay, the window is still open. It's not going to stay open forever. We need to capitalize on this. But this year we're we're changing some of those statements to say, it's important to realize it might actually be closing. Um, Let's not look back and say, we left opportunity on the table. Let's not look back and say, wow, wish we would have just had 10% more phone calls or 5% more of this type of activity. Let's, you know, let's leave it all out there now. Let's bring it. Let's, um, you know, let's do all that we can. And if and when the market changes, then we'll rest. Okay,
1: that sounds good. That sounds good. If you're a recruitment business owner, you might be feeling the pressure to invest in new technology. But how do you invest in technology that is proven to win higher paying clients? Otherwise, overall, you're just making a financial loss. Our trusted partner iintro has a solution for this. They provide recruiters with an online delivery platform for the candidate shortlist. So instead of sending over CVs or resumes, you can send your clients an online profile that includes video, key competency questionnaires and behavioral assessments. It looks more professional than a CV or a PDF, plus it helps the client make a more informed decision about who to call to interview. But that's not all. iintro also provides recruitment business owners with coaching for their team, not just to help them use the software, but to help them use it to win more retained business. Their comprehensive training program is specifically designed to help recruiters at all levels of experience develop a retained recruitment service. In fact, many of the hundreds of recruitment businesses they've worked with win a brand new retained client after only a few weeks of getting started. To see iintro in action, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to book a free demonstration. There's no obligation, plus you'll also be helping to support this podcast. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. I interrupted you when you were about to share some of the highlights. So, looking back over your career, what do you, you know, what are some of the things you're most proud of?
0: Growing the team. And uh, so, I've had different coaches. Um, I'm I'm a big proponent of coaching um, because I think as recruiters, we pride ourselves in being spectacular recruiters. And then, you know, as a side note, being experts in whatever industry we focus on. But there's not a guide or rule book on um, how to be a business owner and how to be a manager. And um, fortunately, Mark, there's there's some outstanding people like you that that can be that board of advisors. So I've been fortunate that I've had people like that. And years ago, when I was thinking about growing for the first time, somebody said, you're going to need to have a really good number two. And- uh, and then they said, you're going to pay for it. Um, uh, and so it, it was just at, at the time I just made a mental note of it because I wasn't ready for, I wasn't ready to relinquish some of that responsibility and I wasn't ready financially. And then four or five years ago, just realized I I can't do it all. And at some point I've got to be able to relinquish, which is, um, giving up control and, and recruiters man, we, we like our control. Uh, and so <laughs> even though uh, we
1: control is an illusion, right? The only thing you can really control is your own mindset decisions, you know, actions, behaviors, you know, you can only really control yourself. You can't control other people, but boy, do we like to try?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it is an, a little bit of an illusion. Um, so one of the I, I don't even want to give myself a lot of credit i mean some of it was necessity but just relinquishing some control to deanna who's in my office and deanna's coming up on seven years and uh i, I mean i've seen her grow from a recent college graduate to really um a coo and it's been an amazing rise but there's something mm-hmm. first very scary and vulnerable about relinquishing control. And then that becomes liberating. And um, she's consistently risen to the challenge, but allowing her to be involved in hiring for our team, allowing her to be involved in operations and management, and, uh, you know, even sharing some of our metrics after that initial shock of, wow, you know, we're really sharing some intimate details. It became amazing, and and that really that was the catalyst for a lot of our growth. Uh, and then, um, you know, watching another human grow, um, it's like watching your kids grow. So it's it's become the source of pride.
1: Yes, a hundred percent. I'm so glad you said that because, well, look, first of all, um, making that first critical hire, especially someone who's complimentary to you, you know, on the operations side, I think that is such a smart move. Um, And I actually did the exact same thing in 2019. I hired Leanne, Leanne Sarah Jones Hunt, uh, as my number two. And the impact on our business has just been absolutely phenomenal. And I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I do this like years ago? And of course, I'm, you know, it all worked out for the best because if I had hired someone years ago, me me and Leanne might not have gotten together. But so it worked out, it worked out kind of uh, perfectly. But the thing that stopped me was, I think, fear of a not knowing if I was going to be good enough to be a manager or a leader or like, um, not having confidence in my leadership skills. Number one, number two, fear about taking on this additional overhead and then what if it doesn't work out? So there's all these, or, or, or three, like right now, kind of, people are used to dealing with me and what if I bring someone else in and they don't have the same relationship with our customers or so there was all these, but really these fears are just excuses, Alan, and they were limiting beliefs in my head, which stopped me from, which kept me small and stopped me from reaching my potential. And I think there is, you know, that mental, uh, leap that people need to make if they do have any ambition that they They'd like to create something that's bigger than just themselves. Um, But the other thing I wanted to share related to that is recruiters... um, I think the big mistake that recruitment business owners make is they don't realize that um, to be a successful business owner isn't the same as being a successful recruiter. And that actually you know um, re- the best recruiters aren't necessarily the most successful business owners the most successful business owners are the ones who are good at marketing sales and leadership more so than the actual tech you know technical aspects of being a good recruiter it's a it is a different skill set um and and the third and final thing i i'd i'd say about this is that um i think you you do want to hire someone who's complimentary to you. So how did you decide that you were going to find someone who is more operationally focused?
0: Why was that the logical step for you? I'd like to take credit for saying I sought somebody out who was operational in their thinking, um, but it was, it, it just came to be so, Six, seven years ago, somebody introduced me to an assessment called Finders. And everybody in our office took it. And um, it it says that there are 34 core strengths and people are going to be the happiest when they're spending the majority of their time in their top five. So it'll rank you based on the the Q&A. It'll rank you. What are your top 34 in order? Um, And then the theory is people can work in any of those from one to 34, the lower they are on the list, the more energy it takes to work in that strength or that weakness that, you know, people can be in any one of these for any period of time, but it actually can become exhausting and frustrating uh, when you're working in some of the things that are lower on the list. So um, Deanna was a recruiter um, and a really good recruiter. Um, and we did strengths finders, and her number one strength was learning. And when I really read about that strength, it's it's not so much conducive to recruiting. Um, it's conducive to a lot of other things because it says that you thrive on learning and mastering new concepts. Uh, but it's it's in recruiting. I think there are a lot of other skills which are great and, um, the, the, assessment led us both to believe that she could really summon those up, but it would just take a little bit more energy. So realizing she's fantastic in general, um, might there be a different role? Uh, and, and so she pivoted to, uh, our office manager and, um, it was amazing um, because as, as an office manager, it was project management. It was overseeing tasks. And then it was using her abilities as a, as a learner to teach other people. And an interesting thing happened. The, the more she was working in her just natural strengths, the happier she was. And um, so she stayed in that role as office manager. Uh, And then as we grew and as there was more responsibility, it was a promotion to manager of administration, director of administration. And um, her title now is director of of operations and recruiting because um, just because something is a core strength at one period in time, it can change. Um, And over five years, as we've grown and as she's continued to mature, she's exhibited a lot of strengths that would make her great in working with candidates and clients. Uh, And so that was to change about a year ago. And she now is not only our COO, but she's also directly working with candidates and clients. And I mean, I think she's happier than she's ever been. And um, it's it's allowed us to grow because she can impart so much of that wisdom just effortlessly to our team. I love that story. So shout out to
1: Deanna. It's Deanna, right? Deanna Gutierrez. Yeah. All right. That is a that's an awesome story. I love that. I'm going to check out Strengths Finders. That's one I I'm not familiar with, but that sounds like a really valuable exercise. Uh, and you're totally right. Like we all have different strengths, and the more we can play to those strengths, and the more you can you know, you leverage people's strengths and get them into a role in your organization to which they're best suited, you know, that's only going to make them happier and make your company perform better. Um, it reminded me of, um, are you familiar with EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System? It's, uh, no, it's a methodology for scaling, uh, Type businesses, but in any case, the the authors um, the authors wrote a book, and it was about this idea that you actually need two types of leaders to grow a business. One is a visionary, and one is an integrator, and that usually it's not the same person who has both of those um, personalities. And so, the visionary is the one who has big ideas and is often like kind of good at winning clients, but the execution and the delivery and the detail, you know, required to actually fulfill promises and, you know, complete on, you know, these big ideas and get them actually into the world isn't necessarily that person's forte. And then the integrator is the opposite. They're, you know, uh extremely good at delivering, you know, organizing things uh, and, and, and managing processes and people to make sure that, you know, you achieve the, the result. And that's a very, that's an oversimplification, Alan, but that's the gist of it. And, uh, it's funny because Leanne and I read this book and of course, everyone, as you said, like everyone has aspects of everything, right? It's not that it's not, it's not black or white that you had 43 strengths. Was it 43 or 34? How many were in strengths 34. Yeah. Thirty-four, so 34. it's a it's a scale. So it's not like you're absolutely one or the other. But Leanne and I both took this test to see like which of these um, personalities you. And it was so it was very very clear. Like she is definitely the integrator, and I'm definitely the visionary. Um, even though there's there was quite a lot of overlap as well. But um, you know, trying to. I realized I was holding myself back by trying to be good at everything, which I'm just not. I kind of had to re- accept that there's so many deficiencies um, that I have, and instead of you know making do, why why am I accepting that like poor performance in that aspect? Why not just find someone who's you know excellent at that instead of me being mediocre at that? This episode is brought to you by Recruitment Entrepreneur. If you've dreamed of starting your own business or if you've already got a successful firm and you want to grow more rapidly, then pay close attention. Recruitment Entrepreneur are the number one investors in recruitment startups and scale-ups globally. They provide everything you need to grow your business, including the funding and financial expertise, operational strategy and back office support, and marketing and talent attraction solutions. Led by James Kahn. they've already invested in 45 businesses and you could be their next joint venture partner. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. That's VC is in venture capital. Book a call with one of their investment directors and be sure to tell them you were referred by Mark Whitby and the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com slash VC. Since we're talking about your your Grail Fallon, um, tell me about that trajectory because you've you've really scaled quite significantly in the last couple of years, I believe.
0: Yeah, we've gone from four to fifteen, and wow, um, a couple of years ago, when, when, when we realized that location really wasn't a factor for our clients. Uh, then I realized maybe it shouldn't be a factor for us, and um the old model is you hire the best available person within your your geographic area. Um, but now there was an opportunity for me to go out and hire somebody who was who had experience who was doing exactly what we did, and I really didn't care where they live um so i did I did some recruiting. Uh I you know, I, I created my own target list of competitors and looked for people that had been doing this for three, four, five years and um did a, a national search. Uh and that led me to hire um one of our our and she's she's amazing. She's uh, she's a rock star, um, Kayla, who at the time lived in Milwaukee. And um she onboarded and I, I think it was five months before I actually met her in person. And by then she was, you know, she was already showing this uh, amazing potential. Um, we now have um, employees in, in four states. Um, and even though we have an office that's big enough to hold um, the majority of our team, on any given day, there's there's two of us in the office. And we've done some pretty cool things just to make sure that we're keeping culture going and um it's it's fabulous so we we have our december is a very busy month for us so we've pushed our holiday party into february and we're um uh, all of our remote employees are flying out and so there will be you know there'll be 14 15 of us together and some of us have never met a couple of the other people on the team um deanna even though she interacts with everybody on a daily basis, there are people she hasn't met. Uh, We have two other employees now in Wisconsin. Um, Very few people have met them yet. They would say they feel like they become very good friends just because whether it's Slack or zoom or working together on a, on a split placement, everybody feels a level of comfort and respect for each other. And, and, uh, I'm I'm predicting that it's going to be an awesome event where uh, you know ev- everyone is. It's it's just going to add to more of those feelings of what a cool culture. I love that, Alan. That's
1: a brilliant and it's it's a really r- kind of radical idea. Like before COVID, nobody would have. I don't think. Hardly any recruiting firms operated this way, right, but it almost created this possibility of reinventing the way that companies can grow um, because we we had to work remotely for a period of time, and then it it makes you think, well, it actually was fine, so I wonder if we can leverage this and you know widen the scope like now we have a much bigger talent pool to recruit from there's a few things I wanted to ask you uh, to follow up on that. One is there are some obvious downsides like you can't learn by osmosis in the same way as like sitting beside someone and hearing the way they communicate on the phone and and uh, you know that kind of you know spont- and the spontaneous chit chat and, and um, getting to know people because you're sitting beside them literally for eight hours or more per day. So how have you compensated for that and, and created a, a, a great culture in a remote environment?
0: I used to think the exact same way as, as you, Mark, which was if you want to onboard somebody, they need to sit next to me in my office for two weeks straight. They need to observe every conversation that I have, and we need to debrief. They need to see my screen, and we need to be right there. Uh, and now I realize that's that's not true. Hmm. So I'll start with, um, I think we hire people that are above average in aptitude. So we'll start with, we're hiring people that are smart. We're hiring adults, people that get it. And um, we've modified our training. So one is an acceptance that the way that I like to train, the way that I like to receive information may not be the same way that other people do. So we've really tried to incorporate every style. So we have SOPs on every process. So these are documents and in some cases, graphics. So it's a learning library. And some of our training will be screen sharing where we go over line by line of these. Um, Some of it is role playing, but the library is available. We've actually put it into a three ring binder. So Um, when somebody starts, we can mail it to them, but we also have a PDF Dropbox. Um, some of our training is let's make phone calls together. You know, let's, let's make it a three-way call and listen. And then we can debrief. Uh, we have, um, now because it's a little slow for us, we're doing training three days a week and the training will be Zoom. And we've got a topic and, um, the training so far, five people on our team have conducted training. Um, and I also realize not everybody wants their content from me, but it's great. I mean, we've got, uh, we have three CPAs on our team and, and people with tremendous experience and methods of training and they can get it in, um, in different formats. So, but I've also put myself in the shoes of the recruiter, um, I would not enjoy sitting next to somebody and, and being within six inches of them two weeks straight. Uh, and and so the (laughs) idea of training has to be eight consecutive hours, um, that doesn't work for most people. So now we break it down into more bite-sized pieces where it'll be three 90 minute sessions a day. Um, and, and we realize that it's, it's a lot to take in, um, and, and and we would say you're going to train for two weeks. And now we realize that the learning curve is amazing. And um, usually after a week, people are ready to start. Um, and then our training is let's problem solve. You know, as you go into it, situations are going to come up, whether it's in crafting a LinkedIn message or responding to a message or um, you had a question come up on a phone call. So we've now abbreviated it one week of training and then Go and then let's deal with things since they arrive interesting, so it's actually a faster start to really just
1: dive into the doing doing business um, and uh, it's obviously it's obviously working for you so what um, what's the biggest thing you've learned from, since making this transition to having a national firm where people are working remotely? It poked
0: holes in some of my previous notions which was uh everybody needs to be in an office and everybody needs to be together and um now again you're hiring people that are professionals and there needs to be accountability um and, and I'm not afraid to be contrarian in some of my thinking w- we don't measure all the the metrics that coaches or Industry professionals say we should measure. We don't track calls per day. We don't track send outs per any period of time. Now we'll look at it. And of course, we we know what how many send outs it takes for an offer, how many offers for a placement, how many in mails per call. We we have loose ideas of those, but we're saying as long as the core numbers are there, that's really what we're concerned about. Um, and it's it's almost anti-micromanaging and it's been really successful. Let's focus on let's focus on the important metrics. And as long as those are there, that's what counts. Hey, Alan, can I just ask a
1: question? Uh when you said we don't track certain things like number of submissions or whatever, is it you literally you don't record? There's no way to um look at that data if you wanted to or it's it's that you're not targeting people on those metrics because to me it's two different We're things not targeting I, I'm a big believer yeah 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 because yeah. I think you should actually measure everything but it's just you don't focus on or target people on everything you you agree on and select the most important metrics that matter um but the other data is there and it's available if you need to kind of go back and look at it to figure out like, and help someone figure out why, you know, their performance isn't quite where it needs to be or, or even how they, how they can level up and you can do
0: some more deep, you know, number crunching. Yeah. Great, great clarification. Yes. Uh, Operationally we track. Uh, And so we, we have the ability to see exactly what the numbers are. Uh, But, but until somebody is getting to a place where the um the production isn't there we don't uh we don't sit down with them and say you know th- these are the numbers that we're saying this is where we need to be uh but we um we internally will track everything so you know we we really have a good idea of how many x it takes to get to y whatever x exactly. and Y are.
1: Right, right, right. Because if you have that data, you've you know what the ratios are, right? You know, and then you know, that's such that's so valuable to understand as a as a business and also per individual, like what people's ratios are and then how can we help them to improve in order to be more efficient and get better results with less effort. To me, like I, I am totally against micromanaging people, um, as you say. On the other hand, uh, I think giving people access to real data and helping them to manage themselves by knowing their numbers and understanding like <clears throat> the goal is not that you need to make you know a hundred calls for the sake of it. The goal is that you achieve your own personal you know um income goal, for example, and ideally, with less effort. Rather than than more effort, and the ratios are the key to unlocking that um, that efficiency. So, Alan, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is, um, oh, well, there's so many things. We might need to say, like, let's do a part two. But you mentioned you had done a an actual search for your own business. Could you break that down a little bit further? Because I think this is. So important for anyone who wants to grow a firm rather than just have their own little practice. Um, people tell me, "Oh, it's so hard to find good recruiters, and you know, it, it, I can't find anyone good enough, and so on and so forth." But very often, it's because they're deprioritizing their own internal recruiting needs, and they're they're so busy working on orders from clients that. You know, they're just really not giving it the proper focus. And, and if they treated their own internal hire with the same importance and priority as they would deliver to a customer, they could, of course, get, get the result that they wanted, right? So could you describe how you went about that?
0: I, just like you said, I, I decided that I was going to approach it the same way I would approach a retained search from a client. I, I know that the client's ready to hire, they've given me a deposit, and they're working with me exclusively, and assuming I, I can find somebody that fits, I'm going to get the remainder of the fee. So that was the approach. And um, did a little bit of, of market research to figure out who are the other companies nationally that do this. Um, and And I didn't go after boutiques because I may have to find 100 boutique companies to find 100 recruiters. So I went more after medium and large firms where there could be five or six people to do this job. Um, and I said, uh, I'm going to start with 100. And I crafted what I thought was an amazing in-mail message, um, actually better than in-mail messages I send when I'm recruiting for my clients. And it was talking about the reasons why I think what we do are different. And, and some of it is, um, I believe that we pay um, on the high side, if not above market commissions. Um, we give our recruiters access to the greatest tools. We, I mean, we invest heavily in all the tools that our recruiters have. We don't micromanage. Um, and somebody can come in without any client's, they can come in without any desire to do business development and do quite well just working on the candidate side. And ultimately, if they want to, if they want to become a full desk recruiter, we'll help them build. We'll help them with a the business development plan. Um, and the response rate was eight nine percent, uh, so not spectacular. But what it did was it led to seven eight nine phone calls. And very early on, I realized the caliber of the people I was talking with when I said geography doesn't matter was much better than when I only focused on people that were within 10 miles of our office. Uh, So that was amazing. Uh, And also realizing, because I didn't have a lot of market data previously, um, other firms aren't as generous. Um, There are lots of layers of management. It's hyper-competitive in some of these companies. Like there is infighting of, well, I spoke with this candidate six months ago. Well, I sent them an email nine months ago. Whose candidate is it? Uh, (laughs) And and we just don't have those issues. So when you start realizing what the world is like outside of your bubble, um, you you realize you've got something pretty special to offer. Um, And it was a leap not only for us, but I'm sure it was a leap for, for Taylor, our first remote hire, because you know we're a company 2,000 miles away that she's probably never heard of. Um, she's worked at a national firm for five years. You're going to really take this leap? Um, and it was a series of phone calls and conversations with myself, with Deanna, with other people on the team. And um and then an amazing thing happened because once you do it the first time, you realize it's easier. You you figure out the ways that in a remote world you're gonna hire and onboard and train and mentor, um, and then it all becomes easier. And then of course, Kayla has become a critical part of our hiring team, uh, and and Kayla's lived the experience of working remotely and. Um, you know, when, when people talk with a couple of us on the team, um, they realize that what we're doing really is different. And we've created this amazing culture. Um, and I think we've really created a place. It's a destination. Um, we We went from hiring, you know, the best of what we could find to now we're very, very discerning on who we're going to add to our team and um, very protective of the culture we've created, making sure that anybody we bring in adds to it. Absolutely,
1: that's amazing. Thank you for br- for breaking that down. And um, it's it's smart. I, I I I'm really I really like what you what you're what you're doing, Alan. I think also what was smart was targeting bigger companies because, a of course, they have more you know, recruitment consultants that you can speak to, but also they do tend to be more bureaucratic, more micromanaging, m- less adult environments as you described it, where you have to like get permission to go to the bathroom sort of thing. And they d- they also tend not to pay as well uh, as the smaller boutiques. So you've got, but they do have really good training and they kind of are a good starting point for a lot of people or a good foundation on the, on the basics of the business. And so you're getting someone who they knows that they are, they like recruiting. They want to stay, they want this as a career they've lasted long enough in a t- you know, some of these environments are, you know, are pretty high churn. Right. And, um, you know, they might hire five people to keep one. So you're talking to someone who is lasted in that kind of environment but maybe they're ready for their next step, and they want to. They want more autonomy and the opportunity to earn more. But also maybe just to work in a. It, you, like your culture sounds a lot more appealing to, you know, some of these um, national or even international firms. So I think that's a good, um, a good hunting ground, Alan. In in your own, are you still running a desk as well as being an, an owner? Because that's. That's a difficult thing to balance.
0: Yeah. So first and foremost, mm-hmm. I'm a recruiter. Um, that's that is my passion, uh, and uh, I'm day to day. I'm involved in everything: business development, recruiting candidates, matching the entire process, uh, and and still try to be as actively involved in training and coaching and working with um working with everybody on our team but being an owner being a manager being a recruiter by far being a recruiter is where my passion is and and day to day that's i define myself first and foremost as a recruiter okay let me ask you about this then
1: because this is this is the most difficult thing for people who want to grow a firm where they are you know uh, accustomed to being a, a a top biller themselves, and they're you know so they're a producer, <clears throat> and then they need to also spend time hiring, managing, you know, training, mentoring, and you know that is a lot, right? Cuz just just running a desk can be a full-time job. But then you know, running a business can be a full-time job. And so you've got like three full-time jobs at the same at the same time. So how do you how do you manage your time in order to
0: be effective at that? Um it, it's a good point um because how can you be excellent at all three at the same time while still being all the other things you are a, a husband and a father, um, and so I'm constantly looking at process. What are the things that we can push down to a lower level? What are the things that we can automate? What are the things that we can scale, duplicate, so that um, some of the things that are time consuming but are not a great, uh, the greatest use of my time, let's let's create it let's duplicate it. And then let's spend any other time just perfecting it. Um, and, and really going back to that liberating feeling of relinquishing to Deanna, um, I've now gotten a much greater comfort in relinquishing other things. So uh, I think that my, um, you know, what I really enjoy is being on the phone. Um, the, educating and advocating for my candidates and my clients um the subtleties of persuasion um there are there are other parts of the job that I'm really good at but they're not a good use of my time so um our ops and admin team is really good at using what you said earlier taking perhaps my vision or my idea and then implementing it um and that's the beauty of having a team and surrounding yourself with people that are complementary is Um, you know, there are, there are things like, um, putting together a, uh, a candidate write-up. Okay. Maybe I can dictate that and have somebody else actually do the writing or sending a a confirmation about the send out. Uh, okay. Our admin team does it. And when we look at it, it's, we're not going to reinvent the wheel, but what are the things we can do to just bring this item closer to perfection? So. you know, constantly trying to focus on the things that I think are, are highest and best value, best use of my time. Um, but it's, um, it's not a 40 hour a week job. Um, but I love it. And, and, and when, you know, the, the old saying when you're doing something you love, it doesn't so much feel like work. Um, I, I I don't feel like it's too many hours and, um, you know, it's, it's part of, it's part of creating something. Absolutely. Well said, well said. And, uh, Alan,
1: the next time we, we get together, uh, I'd love to pick your brains about process and automation. Cause that's something that I'm excited about myself. And, um, we're, I I'm looking forward to seeing you in April. I'm, I'm coming to San Diego to, um, to meet, the folks at Pinnacle and uh, I, I look forward to actually
0: having our next conversation in person. And, and, and you brought up the next time we get together, and and you beat me to it. I was gonna, I was gonna thank you in advance, uh, Mark. You're gonna um, give generously of your time, and you're gonna be our keynote speaker for our Pinnacle Conference in April. And um, just a great example of some of the unbelievable content and education that Pinnacle brings to its members is. You know, for the seventy-five or eighty members that that are going to show up in San Diego, it's an opportunity to to hear from you and hear you share some of the stories of the one hundred and fifty recruiters you've interviewed, and um, it's priceless. Um, you know, talking with you one-on-one today is great, but hearing the collection of all your stories and hearing from you in person—that—that's um, the value of a group like Pinnacle. So. Um, as Danny Cahill did for me 25 years ago, um, I, I, I'd love to educate people about what a great organization it is. Um, every year, uh, a couple of spots open up in membership. So if there's somebody that's listening to your program that would like more information, um, I'd be happy to extol all the virtues of what being a pinnacle member is and um, really how it's changed a lot of how I, I do my business. Awesome. Well, Alan,
1: and so definitely look Alan up on LinkedIn, Alan Fisher, uh, Alan with two L's, F-I-S-H-E-R, Fisher. Reach out to him, connect on LinkedIn. And uh, Alan, this has been so fun, and I look forward to seeing you in person real soon.
0: Awesome. Mark, thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really wanna help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.